you have your Bible here this morning, I'd ask for you to join me in the Gospel of John. We have been studying through John's Gospel here on Sunday mornings since the start of this year, and we've made steady progress. Today we are in chapter 4, and I want to talk to you on the subject this morning of living water for thirsty souls. In 2016, there was a photo that spread like wildfire across the internet and social media. It was this heartbreaking image of a naked two-year-old Nigerian boy of skin and bones being given a sip of water from a Danish woman named Anja Loven. Anja was in Nigeria on a mission trip with, with her husband when they came across the boy desperately clinging to life. And according to the story that was told to her by villagers, the boy had been abandoned by his parents. In fact, no one even really knew his true name. The reason for his suffering was bizarre to Western ears, but his family had become convinced that he was a witch. And this boy was one of an increasing number of children in Africa called witchcraft kids who are seen as cursed and sources of the family's sickness, death, or misfortune. Often these so-called witchcraft kids are abandoned or killed. But after giving the boy water, Anja took him to a hospital where he was nursed back to health. And then she took the boy in and she gave him a name, Hope. Today, this is Hope. He's a smiling miracle. And as for Anja, rescuing hope was only the beginning because she and her husband were inspired to sell all their possessions, to move to Nigeria and start an orphanage which they called Land of Hope. And so far, they have saved 34 witchcraft kids from the streets. What a picture. How God could bring two seemingly different people from across the world together and how one cup of water changed so many lives. I think that picture of Anja and hope is, and the miracle that followed is a, a modern example of the living water that Jesus offered an outcast woman that we meet here in John chapter 4. While Jesus was resting on the edge of Jacob's well, Jesus reached out to a woman who had been used and abused and he offered her a drink of living water. He offered her a new life. And like so many of our testimonies here today, this woman wasn't looking for God when he found her. And what follows from John chapter 4, this encounter between the woman at the well and Jesus is one of the most vivid examples of how Christ seeks out sinners. How He creatively and lovingly and patiently brings them from the outside to the point of salvation. And in this message, I, I want us to study this encounter at the well as we talk today about living water for thirsty souls. The first thing I want you to see this morning as we turn to our text is Number one, how Jesus seeks us. How Jesus seeks us. Let's start in verse 1. 
of chapter 4 in John. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he came to a pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then this little editorial comment, For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There's no greater seeker of souls than Jesus. Remember what he said in Luke 19 and verse 10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. In John 6, he reminds us that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's always seeking. Friend, if you've ever sought after God, it's because he first sought after you. And such is the case as Jesus sets foot in Samaria on this day. We read that in verse 4, Jesus actually diverted his travel plans because he had a providential, a divine appointment with this woman by the well. If you read it in the old King James, Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. And as you study the background of this story, what you begin to understand is that when Jesus reached out to this woman, He was doing something socially taboo. In fact, as Jesus pursues this lost woman, I think that he reaches beyond three barriers of that culture. And I want to point these out to you today as we look at this first point, how Jesus seeks us. You know, all the barriers that keep us separated don't separate us from God. First, I want you to see that he seeks us despite our race. He seeks despite our race. The Bible tells us in verse 9 that the Samaritans and the Jews had no dealings. You need to understand the background of this text in order to make sense of it. But in Jesus' day, the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans was as wide as the Grand Canyon. The two ethnic groups did not mix. The Jews of that era had a deep-seated prejudice against the Samaritans that actually goes back hundreds of years. I don't have time to get into all the history, but let me just give you the Cliff Notes version. The animosity between the two goes back to the Old Testament about the year 722 B.C. when the Assyrians come into the north, they invade Samaria, and they deport a lot of the people up there. And because of that, they were forced to intermarry. And that action right there caused the Jews who were in the south to look upon their brothers and sisters in the north as half-breeds. And so the proud Jews in Jerusalem viewed the Samaritans uh, through a jaundiced eye. They wouldn't touch a Samaritan with a ten-foot pole. In fact, the average Jew would do everything they could to 
avoid Samaria like the plague. No self-respecting Jew would set foot in that city for fear of becoming unclean. In fact, many people in that era who were Jews would intentionally take the long way around the city so they wouldn't have to get the dust of Samaria on their feet, as it were. Even some Jews prayed at this time, Lord, remember not the Samaritans in the resurrection. So to say there was a strife between the two is an understatement. And you can imagine how shocked this woman was as Jesus reclined there in the noonday heat, catching his breath, asking her for a drink of water. This was something you just did not do. When Jesus saw this woman at the well, though, he didn't look at her through the eye or through the lens of prejudice. He looked at her through the lens of love. You see, Jesus knows that there's only one race called the human race and we're all equally fallen and we're all in need of a Savior. You see, friend, we hear a lot today about social justice and, and equity and inclusion and, and diversity. It seems to be the mantra of today's culture. But I want you to know that the cross of Jesus Christ is the only place that's really level uh, racism is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And the answer to solving the race problem is not sociology. Friend, it's theology. Government can't give me a new heart. A Supreme Court justice decision won't change me. Black Lives Matter marching down the street can't make me love somebody uh, from across the tracks. Only God can do that. And Jesus specifically went after this woman, I think, to teach us the lesson that we learned in Sunday school. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight. Billy Graham in 1952 was holding an evangelistic crusade in Jackson, Mississippi. Now these were the days of the Jim Crow segregation in the South. But as he arrived, he found out that the seating at that venue had been arranged to accommodate blacks on one side, whites on another. Ropes were put up to keep the blacks and whites apart. And when Graham first arrived and he saw that, he personally went over and pulled down all the ropes. And he refused to let them be put back up by the stadium people. Here's what Billy Graham said about that. He said, the closer the people of all races get to Christ and His cross, the closer they will get to one another. Friend, the answer isn't pumping a bunch of woke garbage into the minds of our children. The answer isn't critical race theory in our public schools. The answer is Jesus Christ in the hearts of men and women who help us to see them as somebody that God loves, somebody that's made in the image of God, somebody for whom Jesus died for. Now think about this lady. She's prejudiced against Jesus. There's an ethnic divide here. He was Jewish, she was Samaritan. And I want to speak to some of you today who may be prejudiced against Christianity today because of a bad church experience. Or maybe you had an experience with a judgmental Christian who turned you off from church. Well, friend, I'll tell you what my papa used to say. Don't cut down the whole tree because of a few bad apples. 
Don't prejudge Christ because of a few counterfeits. Judge Christianity by Jesus. And Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will never disappoint you. Jesus will never judge you. Jesus seeks us despite our race. Then I also want you to see this. Jesus seeks us despite our religion. Drop down, if you will, to verse 19 in our text today. And I want you to see this. I know we're shooting ahead. But in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. They say there's two things you don't talk to folks about. Especially folks you've just met. You don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion. Well, Jesus just throws all of that out the window, doesn't He? He crosses another divide here. He begins to speak to her about religion. Now one thing you need to understand, not only were the Jews and the Samaritans ethnically divided, but they were religiously divided. You see, the Samaritans had their own temple up in the north in Samaria where they worshipped at a place called Mount Gerizim. The Jews had their temple down in the south in Jerusalem uh, that, where they worshipped. Another critical difference between the religions of these two folks the Samaritans only recognized the first five books of Moses. And so, really, their concept of God is corrupted and incomplete. And thus, Jesus' statement to the woman, Look, you worship in ignorance. You don't even know the God that you worship. <laughs> you only have part of the Scriptures. And what's interesting here is Jesus points out that true worship is about spirit and in truth. What's interesting here is that Judaism had the truth of the scriptures, but they lacked the spirit. It was just rigid rule keeping. When the Samaritans, on the other hand, they lacked the truth. So both systems at this time were missing something critical. And what Jesus pointed out to this woman was that religion focuses on external trappings where you worship, and the songs you sing, and the version of the Bible you read from. and uh, Your hair has to be a certain length. and you, We all know that. We've grown up in the Bible Belt. We know the legalism that goes along with that. But what Jesus is pointing out here, look, lady, worship is focused on the heart, and it has to have two things, spiritual regeneration and scriptural revelation. Spirit and truth. Now, this lady is leaning on her religion. She was deceived by religion. And there are many people today who are hiding behind stained glass religion with a capital R. They're looking at church attendance and good works and philanthropy as a way to be a good person. And friend, let me remind you that the worst form of human badness is human goodness when it becomes a substitute for the cross. You see... As Paul would say, this lady, she had the form of religion, but denying the power thereof. 
Uh, she'd been to church, quote, unquote. She'd heard all the stories. She sang the songs. She listened to the sermons. Yet she didn't really know the true and living God. And all of her religious devotion had not really changed her. She was still living in a sinful lifestyle. You know, there's many people who have enough religion to make them good, but not make them godly. And that's where this lady was, as the conversation with Jesus was getting a little too personal and a little too up close uh, for comfort. She pointed to her religion. Look, I worship, and and look, we have the the mountain here at Gerizim. and, And Jesus just shot through all of that. You know, religion can inoculate us against the real thing. And we may have been to the well many times, but friend, have you drank from the water? Have you got a drought of the living water? Have you really been changed? You may have heard the preacher's sermon. You may have sang the song, grown up in vacation Bible school, and listened to the Sunday school teacher. But friend, have you actually been transformed? You may have information, but do you have transformation? Has he really changed you? Because if he changed you, you won't go back and live in the same old lifestyle. I was reading this week about testimony of a man named Costy Hinn. You may not recognize that name, Costy Hinn, but if you've been in Christianity for a while, you certainly understand and recognize the name of his uncle, Benny Hinn. Seen this guy? Stayed up late night, can't fall asleep, turn on the TV, there's the TV preacher. He's smacking people upside the head. They're getting slain in the spirit. By the way, don't forget to send in your faith gift will send you an anointed prayer cloth a Peter Paul loincloth that's been prayed over and, and cried over and all of that well Costy Hinn grew up in the shadow of his uncle's televangelism ministry making millions of dollars peddling what we know today as the prosperity gospel health and wealth name it and claim it, blab it and grab it whatever you want to call it well Costy Hinn wrote a book God, greed, and the prosperity gospel. And in that book, he explains how he grew up in his uncle's religious empire. Here's what he wrote. He said, growing up in the Hen family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Could you imagine? He said, our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was in force, and our version of the gospel was big business. Costi said he lived most of his life thinking he was saved. But the turning point, listen came when he actually started studying the Bible for himself. You start reading the Bible on your own and let the Spirit of God speak to you through the Word of God, it will begin to change your perspective, won't it? As he did, Costi realized that everything that he believed in the prosperity gospel was totally false. And when Jesus brought him out of that man-made religion, he said, quote, I wept bitterly over my participation in a greedy ministry manipulation and my life of false teaching and beliefs. He said, I thank God for His mercy and grace that Jesus can save anyone, listen to this, even those like me who by all outward appearances are the most religious ones. Thank God that Jesus Christ is here to save us from religion. To save us from legalism. To save us from trying to earn our way and be good enough. I don't have to be good enough. He was good enough for me. 
You see, friend, what you need to realize today, religion is what sinful people try to do for a holy God. But the gospel is about what a holy God has already done for sinful people. A religion says do, but my Jesus already says done. Religion is man reaching up to God, but the gospel is God reaching down to man and pulling him up out of the muck and the mire. No one is so bad that they can't be saved. And nobody is so good that they don't need to be saved, friends. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He sought this woman beyond the race barrier and beyond the religion barrier. Then I want you to see he sought her despite her reputation. The reputation barrier. As we continue reading, you're going to learn that this lady had a sordid story. In fact, verse 6 is very interesting to me. As I study it, the Bible says that Jesus came there about the sixth hour. We don't reckon time that way, but if you translate it to modern day, it's high noon. It's the hottest part of the day. Now, if you study the manners and customs of the early Jewish people, what you understand is that nobody went to the well to draw water at the hottest part of the day. That was a chore that they did early on in the morning when it was cool because carrying those big jars of water is tough and you had to collect all your water for that day's needs, for the cooking and the washing and the cleaning and so forth. So this was a chore that was done in the morning. And yet here's this woman meeting Jesus at an odd time. That's why I tell you it's a divine appointment. The fact that this woman is doing this in the middle of the day is quite telling to you and I because she's come at an hour when there's not much traffic. The question is why? And I submit to you, I believe that she was there at that time of day because she was trying to avoid the social stigma that had come along with her sordid lifestyle. You see, people knew who she was. People knew that she had been around. People knew that she had slept with so many men and had a past. And think about it, friend. This woman had scheduled her whole life out of maintaining a life of sin and shame. She rearranged her whole day just to avoid being in the glare of somebody else. It was her scarlet letter that made her come to the well in the hottest part of the day just so she wouldn't have to deal with the shame of her life. You know, there's some people who are trapped in a situation today. There's sin and there's shame and there's addiction and there's brokenness and you don't know how to get out of it and you've just become accustomed to living in the dark and you think it's normal but you don't know how to break out. That's why Jesus came and found her at that well. She was at a place where she thought, nobody will find me, nobody will reach out to me. But that's the very place where God came looking for her. He found her in her pit of shame. He met her there. Friend, isn't it interesting that for you and I, the place where we think God can't get to us is the very place where we meet God face to face. Oh, God's not in my brokenness. God's not in my addiction. God's not in my sin and my shame. And yet you turn around and find out that He's there offering you living water. Oh, my gosh. 
See, we're going to see very soon that this woman, oh boy, did she have a past. One commentator said the Samaritan woman had the face of an angel and the morals of an alley cat. <laughs> kind of quaint way to put it. But dis- listen to me. Despite that reputation, Jesus pursued her. You know why? Because he loves sinners. He loves the broken, the outcast, those who we think are irredeemable, the trash of sus- the people that are thrown away to the outside. Those are the ones that God says, give them to me. Listen to me, somebody needs to hear this today. Jesus isn't turned off by your past. The things that you've done or things that have been done to you doesn't make you irredeemable or unlovable in the eyes of this Savior today. God sees us as we are. He loves us as we are, but by His grace, He doesn't leave us as we are. Amen. That's how Jesus seeks us. Then I want you to see today, number two, how Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us. Jesus had an uncanny way of getting to the heart of a person. And in terms of evangelism, if you want to know how to do evangelism, you study this passage right here. It's like studying a Beethoven symphony or a Da Vinci painting in evangelism. It's a masterpiece how Jesus reached out to this woman. And he brings this woman to a point of salvation by appealing to her in three different ways. The way that he sought her is the way that he seeks us. And the way that he saved her is the way that he saves us. How did he do it? Well, notice this. He invites our spiritual desires. He invites our spiritual desire. Look at verse 10. The Bible says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty. And the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or have come here to draw water. Notice what's happening here. She thinks Jesus is talking about physical water, but Jesus is using the physical water as a metaphor to talk about spiritual water. He's talking about salvation. He used the known to talk about the unknown. He used the natural to talk about the supernatural. For most of their dialogue, they're they're kind of talking past each other, but Jesus helps her to realize. And one way that God often draws us in is by unmet desires. That's how he draws this lady in. You know, God will allow us to drink by the the wells of the world only to find out that those waters will never satisfy. God invites us with spiritual desire to come to Him. When we've tried everything the world has to offer in sex and money and success, we discover that it's never enough to fill the vacuum, to fill the void that's inside you and me. And when the pangs of that unquenchable thirst are unbearable, then Christ can step in and say, I've got what you're looking for. 
the meaning, the purpose, the love, the grace, the fulfillment, all those things you've been seeking in the broken cisterns and the dry wells of the world, it's in Jesus Christ. I grew up a sports fan. Never been a Dallas Cowboys fan. Sorry, Preston. In the early 90s, they were quote-unquote America's team. I couldn't stand the Dallas Cowboys because they won so much. I was a Carolina Panthers fan. Still am. So when Dallas loses, it's like as good as a Carolina win for me. Kind of like when Duke loses, it's as good as a Carolina win. But if you grew up when I did watching football, you'll remember one of the cockiest players, one of the most talented players that the Cowboys had was Neon Deion Sanders. Remember him? Prime time. And every time he intercepted the ball or scored a touchdown, he'd do his little dance in the end zone. He played 14 seasons in the NFL. In the 90s, he won two Super Bowl rings with the Cowboys and the 49ers. I did not like him growing up because he was so cocky, but he was good. and He could back it up. And I just thought he had, a, he had an ego so big. I was watching an ESPN documentary recently about him talking about his career and but do you know today he's a Jesus follower? Listen what happened to turn him around. After winning his second Super Bowl, he got on the phone the night that he won the Super Bowl and bought a $275,000 Lamborghini, thinking that he had finally arrived. But he ended up driving that car off a 40-foot cliff in a failed suicide attempt. Listen to me, friend. Don't think that the Hollywood elites and the celebrities and the athletes have all the answers they're just as broken and messed up as you and me they're just on a bigger stage and they've got more money to try and medicate their problems than you and I they still need Jesus listen to what Deion Sanders he said quote I tried everything parties women buying expensive jewelry and gadgets and nothing helped he said, I got all this media attention and everything the world has to offer, but no peace, no joy, just emptiness inside. He said, after knocking on death's door, I got on my knees and I finally surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. He said, quote, football is just a game, but faith in Jesus is everything. He had great spiritual desire that couldn't be filled with worldly things. That's how Jesus spoke to this woman. He understood the desire, the pain, the shame, all the weight that she was carrying. And he addressed that need in her life. Not only does he invite our spiritual desire, but notice this, he investigates our sinful deeds. Oh, you was waiting for me to get to this part, weren't you? What's a gospel message without a little bit of sin? Notice what happens here. Verse 16, we'll continue reading. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband. Whoa, 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 Jesus. <laughs> You're getting a little too much in my grill. Call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What a great understatement in the scripture. When a man shows up that you've just met and tells you everything about your past. Jesus investigates her sinful deeds. I grew up listening to Brother Johnny Tiller preach. 
at Pole Creek Baptist Church. He was my childhood pastor, and he used to say that before somebody can be saved, they must first be convinced that they are lost. You've got to get them lost before you can have them be saved. And that's why Jesus moves his omniscient gaze to the, her hidden life of immorality. And if Jesus in water and that offer to her was going to mean anything, she was going to have to face up and be honest about the fact that she was shacking up with a man and she had unresolved things in her past that she had yet to give to God. Many of you know the, the Catholics, they have a practice of confessing their sins to a priest. Some of you may have come out of a Catholic background. But I heard a story about a young Catholic priest who was serving in the confessional booth for the first time. He was being watched over by an older priest, his trainer, his mentor, if you will. And at the end of the first day, the older priest took the younger man aside and he said, Look, let me give you a piece of advice. When a person finishes confession, you've got to say something besides, Wow! <laughs> Hey, God's not surprised by your sin, friend. He already knows about it. We spend a lot of time and energy trying to cover it up and say that, oh, me and the Lord have an agreement. No, you don't. You need to be honest with Jesus Christ. You need to be honest before God's Word and God's Spirit and understand the depth of your sin and the greatness of His holiness and that if you don't come to Christ, there's no, there's no hope. You see, friend, you can't fool God. This woman, she couldn't fool Jesus. Jesus is serious about sin the way that a surgeon is serious about a tumor. The doctor opens you up and finds a malignancy, tells you about it, and then sends you home with two aspirin and says, call me in the morning. You would not say that's a good doctor. You'd say that's a quack. And no preacher who really cares about the souls of people can sugarcoat sin. Listen, I'm not helping you. I'm not being a light in this community. If I try and rearrange the Word of God to pet you and make you feel good and think you're okay with God, I have to talk about sin. It's the problem that infects every one of us. And friend, these preachers who want to tiptoe and walk around on eggshells and is afraid to really get down in the brass tacks of life. They just need to resign and go find something else to do because this word will diagnose the human heart. And if you don't have the guts to preach about sin and salvation and, and, and hell and judgment and grace, we're missing the mark. Jesus is the great physician and he confronts sin because, listen, his purpose is not to hurt. His purpose is to heal. And if I preach to you and it's hard and it convicts you and it touches your heart, just know that I've already been to the woodshed and God's already dealt with me. Oh, God, help us. The sin we cover, God will uncover. But the sin we uncover, God will cover. He investigates our sinful deeds. There's no hiding anything from Him. He already knows. So you might as well confess it, plead the blood of Jesus, get right and change your life. Then lastly, notice this. He incites a significant decision. Verse 25, the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming 
who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Now, don't miss something subtle here. I've studied this passage many times, and God showed me something the last time I studied this passage that I've never seen before. God ever do that to you? You open up his word and he blows your hair back? Except for Stacy and Cliff over here, we pray for them. Here's something I noticed about this. Just give me a few minutes, okay? Don't miss something critical in the subtext here. Jesus' offer of living water goes deeper than what you might think. You see, the Bible tells us that as Jesus talks to her, He says, you've had five husbands before the man that you're now living with. Now, I'm not good at math. I went to public school. But listen to me. That makes Jesus man number what in, in front of her? She's had five men in her life. The man she's with is number six. Jesus is before. That makes him man number what? Seven. Hello. The number seven is significant in John's gospel. The whole gospel is built around seven. There's seven sign miracles, seven I am statements, seven witnesses to his deity. Biblically, if you study the number seven in the scriptures, it's always associated with God's perfection, God's completion, seven days of creation. And it's interesting to me that as Jesus stands before this woman, he's the seventh man in her life. Oh, praise God. He stands before her with an offer of living water that he says will fulfill her deepest longing. In other words, as the seventh man, Jesus says, I can give you the unconditional love. I can give you what you've sought for in all the broken relationships out there in the world. I will complete you. I'll never break your heart. I will be your Savior and the perfect man that you have searched for. Praise God. And Jesus leads her to this critical moment in her life. She tasted it and, and, and tried everything in the world. She'd been trapped in this cycle of one man after another of brokenness and not being able to find a way out. And Jesus leaves her there and lets her decide. What are you going to do? How thirsty are you? Have you really hit rock bottom yet? Because I've got something that will change your life. Friend, you can lead a soul to Christ, but only they can make the decision if they are thirsty enough to take a drink. That's how Jesus seeks us and how Jesus saves us. But then I want you to notice this, how Jesus sends us. I'm about to land this thing, so just bear with me. Look at what verse 27 says. And then just as his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with this woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why? Are you talking to her? Watch this, so critical, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town as they were coming to him. Oh, friend, this is my favorite part of the whole story. The very purpose for which she came got totally diverted and changed around by Jesus Notice what the Bible says, one tiny little detail. She left her water pot and ran back into town. You see, this woman instantly became a missionary, and she goes into the city, and she tells others about the man who told her everything about her past. 
her ugliness, her love life, and everything that was terrible in her past and how he had offered her something different. Friend, there's a, there's a lot of meaning behind that abandoned water part. Here's a woman who's so overjoyed that uh, by the mercy and grace that she's been given that it's now percolating up through her spirit. You know why she left the water pot? Praise God, because she had become the vessel. She was now taking the living water back to the town and letting people know, hey, there's a man over here. (laughs) He'll change you. He'll transform you. He'll fill you up. Oh, my goodness. Do you see the meaning behind this? Oh, friend, he's living water and he's the bread of life. What drugs and alcohol couldn't do, Jesus did. What success and money can't fill you with, Jesus can. Another relationship can't make you feel loved. Oh, but Jesus can. And when you get to live in water, you become a vessel. And you leave something behind just so you can go live a change and a transformed life. You see, when Jesus comes calling, it's time to leave something behind. He called the disciples and they left their nets he called Matthew, he left his tax booth he called Zacchaeus and he left his little perch up in the sycamore tree and he called this woman and she left her water park no longer to live in sin and shame, I bet she went back to her old boy and said listen we can't live this way anymore God's touched me I met a man who, who changed me from the inside out won't you change your life and give it over to him And the whole town, the Bible says, is changed from this one conversation that Jesus has with this woman and this offer of living water. And friend, what God might do in your life, in your family, in your school, in your workplace, your neighborhood, this state, and this nation from one drought of living water. In the early 1900s, there was an old preacher by the name of Trumball, Charles Trumball. These were in the days when train travel was very pro- prolific. He got on a train. It was going to take him to his next preaching destination. Well, as he sat down on the train, he noticed that seated across from him was a very crass, very worldly, and a very wicked man. He said as he sat across from this man, he accosted the the people that were on board. He he cussed. And he smelled like he'd just come out of an ABC store. In fact, at some point through the journey, he pulled out a flask from his coat. And he took a couple of swigs of that old whiskey and he handed it over to the the preacher. Of course, he didn't know that the man was an evangelist. Handed it across the way and said, here you go, you want a sip of this? Evangelist kind of prayed in his spirit, Lord, give me, give me some wisdom. What am I going to say to this man? He said, come on, take a drink. What are you, one of them teetotaling Bible thumpers? The old preacher looked back at him. He said, friend, he said, let me tell you something. He said, I used to drink liquor too. He said, but then I met Jesus. He said, and he gave me a drought of living water, and I've never been thirsty since. <laughs> And he says, right there on that train car, on the way over, he led that old drunk man to Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to Jesus on the rail car, rather. 
hey, our musicians are coming. And I'm going to ask for you as you prepare your heart for invitation. We're going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Now I want to know, have you had a drink of that living water? Or are you like this woman? Are you relying on religion? Or are you ashamed of your reputation? I don't know where you are in your life, but God knows and God sees. And if Jesus could reach out to this outcast woman, He's reaching out to you today. Hey, let's stand and let's sing today. If you need Jesus, the altar is open. If you need prayer, the altar is open. If you need to come forward and rededicate your life or, or be obedient to God in a way that you haven't been before, our altar is open for anybody and everybody.